Welcome to the Balls and All podcast. Going deep into what matters most. In ancient Rome, the gladiators went into the arena with these words on their lips. Let me win. But if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. Today, all of you young athletes are in the arena. Many of you will win. But even more important, I know you will be brave and bring credit to your parents and to your country. Let us begin the Olympics. Thank you. Welcome to the Balls and All podcast. This is episode four. That uh, little piece that you heard there was Eunice Shriver. Uh, sister of uh, the Kennedys and a founder of the Special Olympics. That was who was speaking at the first ever Special Olympics. And I think that was back in 1968, maybe. And our guest can correct me, but I think it was 1968 in Chicago. Um, but on the line, who I'm speaking to today is Simon Rodder. And Simon Rodder is the Sports Development and Partnership Manager at Special Olympics Australia. And, you know, this is a really important topic, I feel, that we're discussing today. And Simon's the best place to be able to talk to us about it. So, Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Will. And uh, just to give you some confidence, you are correct. It was 1968 in Chicago at Soldier Field, which is the home of the Chicago Bears these days. And that's why internationally we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. Oh, and and on that, that uh, for everyone who, uh, especially in Sydney or around the world, you will see that a lot of world monuments or landmarks were lit uh, red. Is that correct? It is correct. And, you know, obviously you're based in Sydney, so an icon in the Opera House got lit up red. But me as a proud Melbourneian and, and you know, representing sport, uh, the MCG kindly lit up their stadium red. And so... Um, one of the most famous sports stadiums in the world got in line with um, Light Up for Inclusion and red being the international colour, along with, you know, other famous icons like the London Eye as well. So it was, it was a really great promotional opportunity for our 50th anniversary. So I guess from a, uh, just going off my intro there, obviously we talked about Eunice Shriver and, you know, that let me be brave in my attempt. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a very inspiring message for the athletes of, uh, Special Olympics and athletes and people all around the world. The Eunice is obviously uh, the the mantle of her legacy has been taken over by her son now, Tim, and the Kennedys are obviously well known all around the world for obviously John and Robert. But bring me back to 1962. Obviously, that is the unofficial start date of the Special Olympics. Began in Eunice's backyard in Washington, but as I did my research, I found that the movement which began with her and her family and the bills that were passed with the Kennedys, that's come a long way from 1962 to now where we are in 2018. So talk me through the beginning and where we are now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things, it's it's a great um, genesis because having the Kennedy family, you know, we've just had the, the British royal family visit Australia and, and we know how much sway they've got, obviously, the Kennedy family are probably the closest that America have got to a royal family. And that enabled that momentum to, to push the cause for inclusion and ensure that people with an intellectual disability are able to get equitable opportunities. And like so many other things in society, it comes from a lived experience. So uh, Eunice and, and John F. Kennedy and Robert Kennedy's younger sister, Rosemary Kennedy, had an intellectual disability. And often the leaders in our community are leaders because of that lived experience and they wanted to make that change to provide Rosemary better opportunities and then recognising that there was a need there in the community and, um, you know, we're very lucky to kind of have them as, as I suppose, bigs and, you know, we're the only organisation in the world outside the Olympic Games, the Summer and Winter Olympics, that is allowed to use the word Olympics and, you know, I think that's got a lot to do with the, the sway that the Kennedy family probably held back in the 60s and has given us a great brand now. Um, so so it was it's really a celebration of, of inclusion and ensuring that people were able to access regular physical activity and also allow it to be fun and engaging. So there's always a competitive element to it, but 
you know, let me be brave in the attempt really means just have a go. And I think that's, you know, the sporting philosophy that is carrying true to this day, even with less competitive sport being more popular. So uh, we touch back on Chicago and Soldier Field in 68, and then we go fast forward 68. We go from 68, eight years later, and it's when the first official games began in Australia. Absolutely. So um, it came across to Australia and, you know, disability sport still, I think, is in its infancy. You know, we're working hard. Things like the recent Invictus Games that were on in Sydney are a great opportunity to promote inclusion. I think there was a watershed moment earlier this year with the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games, which was the first time on Australian soil para-athletes were incorporated into the same schedule as the mainstream athletes, which raises that awareness. And I think, um, you know, from that 1976 moment where events were quite small, fast forward to this year in Adelaide when we had our 2018 National Games with over a 1,000 athletes participating across 11 venues in Adelaide, and you can start to see the growth of inclusive sport, which um, hopefully will only continue to grow from here. So when we talk about in its, you just mentioned there in its infancy, and while it's 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 definitely growing and it's getting momentum, what's the barriers that's keeping it in its infancy? Which is to me is a bit frustrating. There's there's no way a movement like this with such a powerful message that helps so many athletes and kids and families around the world should still be in its infancy. Now this is obviously nothing got to do with the hard work that people in you know Special Olympics Australia or anything around the world are doing. But what is it from a society perspective that is continuing to keep it in its infancy or not letting it grow with the velocity it should? Uh, well, uh, well, I think we're in a competitive market. So when you look at the causes that are around in the community, uh, both not-for-profit looking through the charity stream or yeah. through government funding, there's a lot of marginalised communities that are all equally in need. Um, you know, we've obviously got large populations of recently arrived communities, um, LGBTI, um, particularly in sport, there's been a recent push for increased female participation. A lot of those programs don't necessarily need huge modifications to sport, um, the rules are the same. The games they play are the same. When it comes to disability sport, there does need to be a few modifications to be able to give people that equitable opportunity. And what I mean by equitable opportunity is they may not need the same playing field, so it's not equal opportunity. We're not providing them necessarily the same equipment or the same playing surface or the same rules. We may have to modify that a little bit. And unfortunately, sport is pretty stuck in its rules and it's pretty traditional. So when it comes to adapting and modifying sport as a sector, we're still grasping with that. And you see that even in mainstream sports when, you know, people feel the skies falling in when 2020 comes into cricket, yet now it's the most popular format of the game. So Actually, sometimes yeah. you need, yeah, sometimes you need 10 years or so for the community to get used to it. Um Probably one of the biggest things facing disability sport as well is just the fear of the unknown, the fear of um, not understanding what intellectual disability is, the fear of tripping up on language, the fear of doing the wrong thing. And I think that goes across all sectors of community, not just sport. You know, it goes into employment and any sort of access or community inclusion. And I think, you know, it's a really, really big issue to overcome as a, as a society. So the access part you touched on is, do you think, what are the barriers really f facing access for people with with an intellectual disability? What are those barriers? I think it's actually the, the design of programs. So when you peel back sport as a whole, it's all based on products and programs. When we deliver sport, the training that you deliver at your under-14s soccer club or the junior program at your local tennis club, it's based on a program or a product. And when sports administrators and, and developers are actually designing those products, they're not designing to the edge. So they're not designing to incorporate the needs of everyone. And that, that happens in the physical environment. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems at the moment with including women in sport is that the, facility, the, the clubhouses actually don't have any women's change rooms. 
because when local governments were designing those clubhouses, they didn't realise there was going to be such an increase in women's sport. But when you talk about uh, intellectual disability, it's actually understanding that you need to be able to design a program that is adaptable so you can modify rules and equipment without changing the sport too much. At the moment, we our sport caters for a certain portion of the population. And if you don't enable something to be designed from the start that includes everyone, it's really hard to retrofit programs, just like it is really hard to retrofit buildings to become more accessible. So um, it, it, you really have to peel it back and take it all back to the start and design inclusive programs from beginning. Um, would, would, it, would it have been hard to change it so drastically or so quickly, as you mentioned? Is there any short-term fixes? Surely there must be something that these clubs or organisations around the country can do to start kind of slowly taking that step to be more inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of discussion around approaches to disability sport. Um, one of the main ones which the sports sector is, is working on at the moment is transitioning from the medical model of disability to the social model of disability. And what I mean by that is that the medical model labels an individual with a disability that they've got and provides a coach or a club that are going to provide that person a program, provides them with, you know, what the symptoms, characteristics, behaviour traits, how you handle that particular person. But when you you start to talk about disability such as autism, which is a spectrum in essence, there's no two people with the same symptoms. So you're not really providing the coaches or the club with real skills. So, and it can also become a bit daunting, um, you know, giving a whole book to a, a volunteer coach on all sorts of disabilities. So um, that, that can be a really difficult concept. So what we're trying to really promote is the social model, which actually doesn't, isn't saying that the person with the disability is the disabling element. It's the community around them. So if you actually start to change your mindset and become a more welcoming environment where you understand that everyone is an individual and you value difference, then it doesn't matter what their intellectual disability is. It doesn't matter if they've got autism or fragile X syndrome. You don't need to be a medical professional. You need to be good at sports coaching and you need to understand how their impairment affects their ability to play your sport. Yeah, but again, I'll, but I'll, again, I'll go back to junior junior sport. I don't know you're obviously a fan of the round ball. Will if you've got a if you've got a new group of seven year olds coming along to your mini ruse program at your local football club, you run through that first session and judge where they're all at, and they're all at varied abilities. And then, as a coach, you understand that you need to modify the activities based on what their abilities are. And that, that's what we need to start to do with disabilities. Instead of saying, you've got this disability, you've got that disability, throw all that aside and just create a more welcoming environment and that will start to change the culture. Uh, people with intellectual disabilities particularly, they get a lot of negative experiences in their life and sport's just one of those, you know, many, many negative experiences that they've got and we just need to start to change that. And you know, there's a lot of resources out there. We've actually... Um, just developed the first ever online coach course to help improve the delivery of sport to people with an intellectual disability. So there's a link on our website uh, to promote that's that. Free. Anybody to go yeah, on? And yeah, yeah, absolutely. So launched about four months ago and we're already up to over 700 registered users. So that course, it's about two hours long, largely video-based scenarios, um, a lot of resources that you download out of, out of the course as well. Um, but you know, hundred percent user satisfaction so far. So it's been and that it's been and really what, from a coach's perspective, that gives a coach or a sporting organization leader or a mentor the the knowledge and the uh, foundations to to go back to what you said, be able to modify sessions and be mindful of when they are doing sessions or if they do have somebody with intellectual disability, part of the session, AFL, NRL, cricket, whatever, to be mindful and how can they modify that session to help them instead of saying, sorry, you've got an intellectual disability, you can't be part of this session. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, you know, it's very easy for me who works for a disability sport organisation to, you know, 
dish out cliches like inclusive coaching is just good coaching, but very much the philosophies of level one sports coaching in Australia are the principles of inclusive coaching. So very much about communication, how you plan, prepare, deliver and review a session. So that's what we've incorporated into the course. We understand that some people do want to learn a little bit more about intellectual disability. So we do include a little lesson around what is intellectual disability. The definition of intellectual disability is that a person has a cognitive impairment. And we go through what sort of effects that may have for some people, but not for all people. But largely, it's practical demonstrations of how you run sporting sessions. And because we're a multi-sport organisation, it's not sport specific. You know, there's bat and ball games, there's um, kicking games, and it gives ideas and resources on how you, how, you, how you can run those sessions. But probably the most important thing, and, and it's something that, that our sector probably doesn't do enough of, is that a lot of the course we get people with an intellectual disability to introduce the content um, so that through online training, we can start to demystify intellectual disability and help break down that fear of the unknown from coaches that don't necessarily work with disability. So that's, a real, that's been a really successful part, just to, to give a bit of ownership back to our athletes as well. Um, you know, I know a lot of them were pretty chuffed to, to feature on this new online course and um, helps both, both sides of the, of the conversation as well. Yeah, and to, just to touch on the term intellectual disability, and I've just read some, I read some stats earlier on on your website. So it states 600,000 Australians have an intellectual disability and a child is diagnosed with an uh, intellectual disability every two hours. Yeah, that's correct. And um, when you look at the participation rates, not just within our organisation, but in sport as a whole, we touch a very small amount of that population. And that population has got increased health risks around diabetes, heart disease, lower life expectancy. When we talk about long-term, um, you know, savings for the government, that physical activity is, is so important, not to mention the fact that people with an intellectual disability generally have very small networks and are often disproportionately affected with mental health problems as well. And that's usually to do with the lack of connection to the community. That's why we're all here, Will. I mean, that's why you love sport, is that making friends and getting out into the community and feeling better about that, yourself. That's a thing that kind of just, it not infuriates me or angers me, but I don't, I don't understand why more clubs, any type of sporting body around the country can't start say to themselves, I'll give you an example, I'm in the Sydney, so if it's, if you're talking like a local league in Sydney, and I'm, but I, I, I am aware that there are a few leagues, but there should be this, this kind of mandate or this kind of oath or, you know, obligation for them to say, okay, no doubt there's families in our community where we have this, where we have our team. And no doubt some of those families have children, three or four children or you know, two or three, and one of them could have an intellectual disability. Why should the other two children, hypothetically, get to be dropped off to soccer and the child with intellectual disability gets left out because there is no opportunity for them to go with their brother or their sister and compete in the games? Now, pardon my ignorance if there is a lot going on around, but even if there is a lot, like, there should be a lot more. Well, sadly, what you're saying is true, and particularly with families with multiple siblings, you know, I don't have kids yet, Will, but don't know if you've got kids, but I know after school and weekends are a busy time for families and it's a lot easier to find a program for mainstream, of providing mainstream sports than it is to find a, a disability sport program. Uh, so unfortunately, the child with a disability will be the one that misses out first and that kind of just perpetuates that, that system. But I, I actually think the biggest problem as a whole is that that sport often doesn't reflect its community. So when you look at the, the percentages of, of people that have a disability or the percentages that are from diverse backgrounds or the percentage of uh, LGBTI people at, at your local sporting club or the percentage of, you know, aged, elderly people aged over 65 that are at local sporting clubs. And I think, you know, it's, it's a wider topic where, you know, I'm here speaking about intellectual disability, but, you know, it's a, it's a problem with sport as a whole, that 
do our local sporting clubs reflect our local community? And I, I think often, particularly with mainstream sports, they really struggle. And, you know, you generally need someone with a passion, a driver, you know, that champion of change in the local community. And that person is often also the club treasurer, runs the barbecue, helps out with the canteen, coaches the under-12s. And we burn out a lot of our volunteers. And, you know, that's where sport as a whole and government, as you said, you know, why can't we start to push mandates? Why can't we lift funding for these marginalised populations to be able to create incentives for sport as a whole to start developing better programs? Yeah, it's, yeah, just, again, like, it's just, it's a bit bewildering to me why that it can't just be, and again, maybe it is that it needs that local champion or that, internal champion in each organization for it to to make it happen but one thing i'm quite conscious of and i know we spoke about it off air going through corporate life our business world and you know here in australia and you know to anybody listening around the world there will be a lot of there's a lot of mention today about diversity so whether that's got to do with uh, race whether that's got to do with sexuality whether it's male or female in the workplace, whether whatever that, but one thing that's left out is intellectual disability. I've sat in many of companies having many of chats and read many of policies and programs and updates that have come through and talk about, you know, we champion diversity, we champion it, we're, we're believers in diversity. But there's never a mention of intellectual disability. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I can... I can stand here and talk to you about the, the research that says how beneficial it is for businesses to employ people with an intellectual disability. You know, the return on investment with the commitment they show by never having sick days, by having averages of around 25 years in the one workplace, so very low turnovers, but then also the effect on staff around them. It, it's, it's really... Um, you, catch, you catch the vibe in a way, and, you know, I, I've worked in a couple of different sports organisations. I've worked for government. And the reason why I've come here is because you feel the passion once once you start doing it. Um, the and, and that's the experience that I get even with community members. I don't know if you're the same, Will. I assume you are with, you know, the connection of, of making this making this call. But Yeah, I, I, it's, yeah it's just... Ugh. Once, once you get into it, like, you, you really... You, you don't know why you ever had that barrier put up in place, but I, I suppose, you know, like any sort of fear of difference, um, it's that fear of the unknown. So people just need the confidence. And, you know, what we're doing at Special Olympics Australia is, is really trying to create more opportunities for the mainstream community to get engaged in our programs. I think that in the past, and, and this is no criticism of, of, you know, anyone before me at Special Olympics Australia, but in the past, you know, although we're an inclusive sport organisation, we've operated largely exclusively from sport, disability and education sectors. And what we're trying to do now is is bridge that gap so that we normalise disability. And I think that has to happen across a lot of areas. And, you know, through that through that increased awareness and increased engagement, you know, that's when you start to, to normalise disability so that instead of playing tennis in our own little Special Olympics community, we're actually building strong and meaningful relationships with Tennis Australia and all the relevant state bodies to have our tennis players play in their mainstream clubs. And then that that's where we start to get that change happening. The, 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 the term you used there, it's a fear of the unknown. And again, part of my ignorance or my simplicity or my simplistic approach to the topic. But the unknown is, is that we will not know how these athletes and kids will flourish and grow up unless we give them the opportunity. That is the unknown. The unknown is not how we're going to do it. You, you, you make the commitment and you figure that out later. The unknown is, is that if we do not provide these children and these athletes and adults and teenagers who have intellectual disabilities, with these opportunities, we do not know how their life is going to go. But what we do know is that the power of sport and FDR included, and we do make those modifications, what we do know is, is that by them being a part of it, it will enhance their life. 
it will enhance the 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 quality. I want to say the quality of life. I mean the social aspect. They'd be they'd, they'd be surrounded by people they know, family. We're talking about drop offs, and maybe a brother and sister is going in, and they're being left off. It provides the parents with a lot more peace of mind and comfort. They're able to see their child participate in these games. So. I I'm, 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 I don't I don't want to I think the fear of unknown is that if we don't do it I think that's a bigger worry. Yeah, absolutely and it's about creating those opportunities. So another example, you know, we're actually entering into a really exciting uh, period of, of developing a new product with Gymnastics Australia uh, where we we're developing a product that sits um, I suppose within their suite of resources as well. Um, it's called Young Athletes, and it's and it's primarily designed to help two to eight year olds develop their fundamental movement skills, but also to help them develop social competencies because it's games based activities in a in a gymnastics environment. We're testing it in a few different um, delivery models. We're going into early learning centres, we're going into specialist schools, and we're doing it at gymnastics clubs. And the idea long term is to have young people with an intellectual disability participating in programs with young people without a disability. And that creates that that better social cohesion, um, you know, starting to, to teach young people to value difference. But also those early years for young people with or without disability are so important to the development, um, skill development. And I think you know, going back to, to early on in the conversation and, and even linking it to the fear of the unknown, I think that a lot of coaches, local grassroots sports coaches, don't know how to modify their coaching for people of different abilities. And, you know, coach education has improved a lot over, over recent years, but most grassroots coaches, and this is just anecdotal, Will, so tell me if it's different down at your, at your football club, most coaches when coaching under pressure, revert back to how they were coached when they were younger. And it's usually drills, repetitive drills. Um, you know, what we need to do is start to think about how it's not always about performance focus. It's about engagement, providing people more of a touch of the ball, um, challenging people to what their abilities are, but ensuring that they can succeed, but also be challenged. And that's the only way that you improve people's abilities. And those skills just still aren't out there in the community. And, you know, going back to, to working with, with mainstream national sporting organisations and doing, the, you know, that online learning that I, that I referenced earlier, all these sorts of things are really designed to help bring up the standards of coaching and, and make it a lot more aware because um, I do think, I do think, People don't understand how the how an intellectual disability affects people playing sport, and it's not until you get engaged and, and start delivering the programs that you understand it's just just like any other person, you know. And so, do you it, think it, there could be? Do you think to me? I've been on a few coaching courses, obviously, to you know to help build up the skill as a coach in whatever a certain discipline. Do you think there's a gap? there for all sporting codes and, and and at any level whether you're elite or whether you just want to be a dad or a mom who wants to coach your local cricket team or soccer team or rugby team do you think that there's an opportunity there for these organizations to include this and if we talk about modification not making wholesale changes do we think there's an opportunity here for these organizations to say also as part of this course say for an example rugby league for little you know little kids there's an also an on, a two-hour online course provided to you by special olympics australia that will allow you to tool up your skills your mindset and your approach that if any children or any people in your area want to be part of your organization with an intellectual disability you won't have to turn them away because of lack of understanding this course will be able to help you and that you think there's a gap there for these organizations to include something like your online tool into their training of their of their sports yeah, absolutely, and, and and that's why we've done it. And you know, some of the some of the great sporting partners have included it on their learning portals now, and are making it part of their coaching pathway. And, and you know, this, this is the start of the wheels of change. So I know um, Softball Australia, 
um, Gymnastics Australia and Tennis Australia have all put it on their learning portals and it's been accredited as a, as points for, for some of their coaches to be able to continue their, their learning journey. Um, but, you know, ultimately, and, and it, does, it does sound cliche, but ultimately this sort of thing shouldn't exist because we should be delivering coach education that values all participants. And, you know, I suppose that's the conversation that I like to have is around, you know, our focus in Australia on, on high performance, our focus on, um, you know, pressuring young people to specialise in sport from a young age, um, of always being the best and not valuing participation and what a good culture around enjoying sport means. And I think, you know, that that sort of culture change is, is where people with a disability fits in because, you know, they, you know, may not be the best player that you've ever seen, but they'll bring something else to your club. Um, a lot of the local clubs that I talk to, because I do think at times you have to change the conversation. I'm preaching to the converted here, Will, but, you know, we both know that inclusion is the right thing to do, but... I mean, that message has been sent for, for decades. Um, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. I mean, that's how long Special Olympics has been around internationally. But the other thing I say is it's actually bloody good for business. You know, we've got there's six or 700,000 people with an intellectual disability that are in the Australian community. They're not getting great opportunities to participate in sport. I would hazard a guess that... Um, probably, you know, well, Ausplay, the, the Sport Australia data says that about 23% of them are somewhat active. So I would say probably 10 to 15% regularly are active. Now look at that market segment there, you know, from a national level down to a local level. Some of these clubs are crazy not to be opening their clubs to these new participants. You know, more members equals more money equals more families down at the club, you know, buying yeah, fruit from your canteen, contributing time and volunteering. So, you know, it's almost time to start, you know, changing that message from not only is it the right thing to do, but it's, but that's it's good it, for your business it, as well. That's the thing. I get the, I get the commercial aspect of it, and that doesn't just fall from, from an intellectual disability perspective. That falls in any pocket of society that you open up your organization to, you're going to generate more people coming in, as you said, more money for the canteen, more visibility, more people are going to talk about your organization. That means four or five others who spoke to that person might come along. So I get that aspect of it, but it is the, it is the right thing to do. And the frustrating part is that if it's the right thing to do, and I guess this is an age old kind of frustration and argument, if it's the right thing to do, then just do it. Don't do do it in the sense that we're not asking you to create 15 teams. We're not asking you to create, like, you know, an amazing... We're we're asking you to try. We're asking you to try. One of the things, Will, that that I'm a big believer in as well is a top-down, bottom-up approach. And, you know, obviously I work at a higher level, you know, work a lot with government, peak disability groups and and largely mainstream sporting organisations to influence that conversation around inclusion. But we also need that that grassroots support. Uh, Some of the greatest change is that grassroots support. And sometimes, you know, we need to start to profile those case studies around what people are doing in the local community and share it with, with other communities. And unfortunately, sport can be sometimes competitive. And, you know, we find that within organisations um, that people are pretty protective. People in organisations are pretty protective about data, particularly when it comes to, to dis- people with a disability. It's tied to a lot of funding from government. Uh, my feeling is let's just all share data. I mean, they're not our, they're not our athlete. Um, we should be providing any opportunity for people to be playing sports. So when we're approaching partnerships, it's really about you know, valuing choice for people with an intellectual disability. The more choice, the more um, programs at a grassroots level, the more programs at a state and national level that are available, the more opportunities there are. But at the moment, we probably uh, pigeonhole people. So there's certain sports that are more popular um, with people with an intellectual disability. There's also, um, you know, problems around flexible membership and how much it costs. We need to start to remove those barriers, all the barriers that people 
face accessing sport, cost, time, uh, geography, all those sorts of things are heightened when it comes to, to people with intellectual disability just because um, they find it harder to access any sort of community service. So really what we need to do is just work from the top, work from the bottom and really affect that change. Um, I, I'd encourage anyone listening to this podcast to, to get in touch with us and you know, we're a grassroots organisation. I keep quoting that I'm working with these national organisations, but I'm regularly out at local clubs running professional de- development sessions, providing resources, uh, co-applying for grants. You know, grants are a really good way of just kick-starting programs to start with. Um, sometimes you need that little bit of funding injection yeah, of course, to, pay, yeah. to, to pay a quality coach or to modify equipment or any of those sorts of things. These are the sort of services that we really want to help local organisations with and, um, you know, really would encourage anyone to, to kind of touch base with us on that. Yeah, it's just to touch back on, and I know I mentioned at the start, you mentioned partnerships there and obviously you're the sports development and partnership manager. Um, I remember speaking uh, to somebody in your organisation. Tell me about how much does it cost for an athlete to participate in games? Um, so the membership for Special Olympics Australia is $75. Um, that's a multi-sport membership and, and covers all insurance and, um, you know, the, the general membership costs. But because we're not necessarily a one-sport membership, sometimes there can be some extra costs for weekly training. So particularly for sports that, that incur general costs like swimming or 10-pin bowling where you're always going to have to pay for a couple of games at a local lane, there may be some extra costs um, and they're incurred by, by the athlete individually. Uh, you know, attending games, like obviously you had, we had the, they had the state games, we had the Australian games in Adelaide. And we have the summer. We have the summer games coming up in Abu Dhabi. I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the athletes, a lot of that, will you know, they have to find that money themselves where they're going, how they're going to participate in those games. Yeah, I mean, we do our best um, to source. Oh yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I don't yeah. want to come across that I'm saying that I'm not, but I just want to highlight the fact that an opportunity like this for athletes with intellectual intellectual disabilities has, ar- arises. And again, Special Olympics can only do so much with the sponsorship and you know everything that you have, but there's still a gap there. Yeah, so, it's, and, and these these sorts of things are life changing. You know these experiences. So we've got um, we've got a 105 athletes travelling across to Abu Dhabi for the for the Special Olympics World Games in March, and those athletes will have a life changing experience. They're going away for you know just over two weeks. The the event goes for one week. It's being held in a number of the the countries throughout the United Arab Emirates, uh, mainly obviously based in Abu Dhabi. But, you know, the first week they're, they're actually um, being uh, billeted out for a few days with local families to get cultural experiences. I mean, these sorts of experiences are, yeah, are life-changing for people without a disability. But, you know, for a lot of these people that, you know, some are really independent. You know, some have been to previous World Games in LA, but you know, some have never been on a plane before. And this sort of stuff is is life changing, but it's also expensive. You know, flying out to Abu Dhabi. We've also you know had a couple of um, team training camps. You know, we've got our uniforms, all that sort of stuff. And unfortunately, as an organisation, we don't have the same sort of sponsorship support support that a lot of the other big sporting organisations have that mean that when you you take a travelling team to a world championships that you get free uniforms or you get uh, financial support to reduce the costs again, to the participants. Again, what, it, does this come back to the fact, does this come back, you talk about the point there that the sponsorship opportunities Special Olympics won't have. And again, I just want to highlight, this is nothing on Special Olympics. I understand the immense role and the hard work that you guys do. But from a corporate Australia or a corporate society around the world australia or anywhere else why is it that we talk about little grassroots sport organizations not doing more why is it not that more companies invest a a, a minimal fee to be able to help these kids and teenagers and adults go on this life-changing experience and again sorry to sound probably simple about how i'm going to describe it but 
I'm sure life is very difficult as it is for the families and the, the you know, the athletes and how they get the money together and being not included in a lot of things growing up in life. And then they get this amazing opportunity. And yet they have to fork out money because obviously you guys have done an immense job and all you can. But there's so many companies around the world and even in Australia that should be able to support. Is it the fear of the unknown we're talking about? Is it the lack of understanding? Is it the ignorance? Is it the the fingers that are in other pies elsewhere, the money's invested elsewhere and they don't find it as a, a great uh, investment going forward? What is it? Yeah, I mean, you know, can I say like, D all of the above, you know, it's probably, it's probably a combination of them all. Uh, I think largely it's eyeballs, you know, um, the big companies generally go towards the big sports. They get in the papers, they get on the TV. Um, you know, I suppose when you think about return on investment, a lot of those organizations are looking for the amount of people that see their, their logo think you know it's a bit of an obsession over quantity not quality I, you know i, yeah, I think i realize their return on investment is a lot more than eyeballs and revenue abso- absolutely absolutely yeah it's what i was gonna yeah it's what i was gonna say even just the the, the quality of a of a singular story um being able to follow an individual on that sort of journey uh would be amazing to their shareholders or you know in their annual report but i i think that you know, still at the moment, what we look at is numbers, total numbers. And that that comes down to government reporting, that comes down to sponsorship, both corporate and local sponsorship. People look at numbers. And when you've got a community that, you know, is generally so small within Australia anyway of people with intellectual disability, and then an organisation and, and a sport that you know, is, again, a smaller percentage of that. I just think a lot of those sponsorship dollars probably just don't come towards, uh, you know, organisations like ours because we don't have those huge numbers. I mean, um, we're on uh, ESPN uh, at the World Games next year. You know, much like the, the, the mainstream Olympics, you're not, allowed to have spo- you're not allowed to have sponsors on your uniforms. So... You know, how, how do you how do you propose that to a to a major backer here when you know you have that as a barrier when you know with other sports you can splash the logo over the back or the front or you know these days NRL jerseys I think there's more logos on them than um, than actual colours of the teams so um, those sorts of things do provide barriers for us to be able to get that sort of support so. Um, at last count, the, the, the costs for the athletes going to Abu Dhabi next year are around $6,000. We've, we've sourced a each. lot of... Lo- yes, each, each. So we've sourced a lot of um, local um, grants, state government grants. Um, we've got some amazing supporters um, with the police force around the country who have, who have contributed a lot of money um, through their organisation called the Law Enforcement Torch Run, which is a... Uh, police organisation all around the world that, that supports local Special Olympics organisations. So we're bringing it down, you know, by hundreds and hundreds and, and thousands of dollars um, with local support. But, you know, it's a lot of, it almost starts to verge on, on tin rattling, Will, and, you know, ideally we'd like to avoid that. You know, we want to be a professional organisation and, um, you know, want to operate in a corporate world and sometimes, um, you know, sometimes that can be difficult, you know, with the numbers that we have. $6,000 each. Jesus, I think more companies and all of us probably need to get the finger out a little bit more and start helping. And that brings me on to my next topic, which is volunteers. So we talked about, you know, the we talked again offline about volunteers helping out for the World Games. How many volunteers would you guys have across the Special Olympics Australia? Well, we've got... Um, over, over, you know, 7,000 people in our database that, that help in some way. Uh, the, the world of volunteering is changing a little bit. Um, probably we're, we're in the midst of a bit of change. And I think, you know, like most sporting organisations, sometimes that can cause a bit of tension. I think the days of, of people volunteering for the one organisation for 30, 40 years is probably starting to change. And, you know, as an organisation, we need to start to welcome some of the younger people through that might only want to volunteer for two or three years. As much as we um, bag out the kids of today, Will, you know, that, that 
they get everything easy. Actually, statistics show that they volunteer more now than any other generation previously, but they actually volunteer in different ways. And we need to start to tap into that because maybe we can use them for social media or maybe we can use them to drive um, programs that, that use their skills. And, and that's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to develop programs that engage a new age of volunteering. So um, at the moment, we're developing schools-based programs where we're going to try and promote that to, to corporate volunteers because some of the big companies do have corporate volunteering that um, that come along during the week, um, not available on weekends when, when our sport generally happens. So we're looking at how to try to develop that to, to be able to provide a new new injection of, of volunteers. But, um, you know, much like, uh, I suppose, the coaching as well, you, you need the skills and the confidence to be able to support people with an intellectual disability and, um, you know, adding to our online coach course, we're actually in the process of developing volunteering courses to, to support volunteers working with intellectual disability. And, and again, open to, to everyone in the community. We want this to be spread everywhere because, you know, the better volunteers are at working with people with intellectual disability, the better our community is. So that goes across the board also. Um, Talk to me about Soar and Roar, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's taking place on um, International Day for People with Disabilities, December 8th or 9th? Yeah, the Soar and Roar, the International Day for, of, for People with the Disabilities, actually Monday, December 3rd, um, sure. on, yeah, on um, Sunday, December 9th, um, there's, uh, there's going to be a whole lot of very expensive cars and loud motorcycles that will be leaving from a number of Sydney iconic venues. Um, they've all been kindly donated by the drivers and the riders and Special Olympics athletes from around Australia um, have been donated rides in those cars and on those motorbikes. And from across those iconic venues in Sydney, they'll all converge on Eastern Creek at Sydney Motorsport Park and we'll do some hot laps and, you know, it's, it's a real opportunity to raise awareness in that same week as the International Day of People with a Disability to promote inclusion and to also have a little bit of fun, um, you know, again, about exciting opportunities that some of our athletes would never experience. I know, I think uh, I heard people talking about Porsches and Ferraris and Lamborghinis and, you know, I'd like to maybe get into one of those one day and I, even I know how special that is. So. It's about providing um, some of our athletes a really amazing experience, but also getting a few links in with, with the corporate world and, and, and trying to, to not only raise money, but raise awareness. And I think when you start combining things like fast cars, loud motorcycles, and you know, some of Sydney's most iconic spots, I think it's a way to really push the message of Special Olympics Australia. Um, you know, we're not just a sport organisation. We're also about community inclusion and yeah that that's kind of the message of, of the saw and raw festival and where, where is it taking place sorry so we're, we're starting off at uh, a number of sydney iconic spots so you know places like luna park and then it will all end up at eastern creek the sydney motorsport park yeah. um what i might do is is provide a link for you to put um on on the podcast yeah, as well just so so that um so that any of the listeners can have a look um and yeah. head out and and see the event yeah excellent um give me a let's let's close this off and let's give me a final kind of end note of where we're at with intellectual disabilities sports special olympics australia and what is the next step and what can people do if they want to do more so where we're at is not enough people with intellectual disability have access to quality physical activity and sport. We all need to work better across not only sport, but also the disability sector, the education sector, to make programs more inclusive. And that's about changing your mindset. But what we need, Will, I'm gonna hold it to you with your, with your football club, we need clubs to come to us and say, we want, we want to change. We, we, we choose to include. We want to be the champions of change in our community. And it will pay off in spades. You know, the, the media attention you get as a local club for running innovative programs 
the new members that you will attract, it will pay off in spades. So really what we need to do... And it's the right thing to do. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm glad that you keep using that that line because it really is. And um, if, if you're feeling concerned about that, yeah, just get in touch with us. Give us a call, shoot us an email, and we'll do everything we can to support you because... You know, sometimes you do need someone with a logo on their top or on their business card. I mean, that's why you've got me on this podcast, Will, um, just to give you the confidence. I mean, you, you know it all. You know, in our off-air conversation, our conversation now, you've demonstrated that you know it all. But um, sometimes you just need to hear from someone that, that's got a, a logo on their shirt just to, to reinforce those ideas. And that's what we're here for. We're really here to support organisations. Yeah, and for anybody who's looking to do that online training, um, they can just go on to the Special Olympics Australia website and it can be found there? Yeah, absolutely. So you can go directly to Special Olympics website. That's So that's uh, www.specialolympicsaustralia.com.au. Or the other alternative to get straight to the new online learning hub is to go to www.soalearn.com.au. So it's www.soalearn.com.au for those people who want to get on and get onto that kind of educational course on yeah. able to skill yourself up and being able to modify sessions and be able to be uh, a skilled volunteer when it comes to uh, people with intellectual disabilities participating. Absolutely. And one more little promo there. We're about to launch 56 activity cards. So they're going to be across a range of sports and they're just fun games-based activities in partnership with Sport Australia to develop the skills and engage people with an intellectual disability. So similar games to you'd see in any sporting club, but just with a few tips and hints of how to be a bit more engaging for people with a disability. Brilliant. And I think for me, my last message would be for anyone listening and in any walk of life, in any sector, that when we're having the diversity conversation, making sure yeah, that diversity conversation is diverse. So making sure that it's, you know, encompassing uh, all social, you know, societal aspects, all social groups, and don't leave people with intellectual disabilities on the sidelines. Bring them Absolutely. in. Absolutely. And, and in, not, make them part of it. Not only that, um, just talk to people with the lived experience. I think, you know, it's too easy for people to um, develop programs off their own experience. But, you know, just like anything, you know, if you don't know about a particular topic, you go out there and you ask people that have lived experience. So I'd really encourage people to reach out even to local specialist schools, local disability groups. I said this at the start, you know, our aim should be to reflect our local community. And if you need help, there's someone in your local community that you can talk to about it. So it's really about just talking to more people and making sure that some of the people that you want to design programs for are actually in the conversation of designing the programs. Simon, it's been a pleasure. Um, look, we could, I guess it's something that you know we could talk about all day and definitely coming up to the World Games, uh, definitely love to get you back on and talk about what more can be done for the athletes that are heading across and what what else we need to know, we need to be mindful of. So we'll definitely get you back on again. But I want to thank you for your time. I think you're doing, what you're doing is amazing. I think that it's about doing the right thing and anyone listening, it's about doing the right thing, how big or small that is. Start, make some type of a start, give it a go, because then you're going to give these athletes a go. You're going to give them the opportunity. So Simon, really appreciate your time and uh, best of luck with everything. Excellent. Thanks for your time, Will. And, um, you know, good luck with your podcast series as well. You're doing some great work too. So thanks again. Thanks, Simon.